Brothers and sisters, we do not need more black pastors. We do not need more white pastors. We do not need yellow pastors, Hispanic pastors, Asian pastors. We don't need that. We need godly pastors. And I know that sometimes for women, it's hard, hard to find men, godly men. But don't ever lower the standards of the Bible. Be faithful to the biblical standards and God will be faithful to you. There are men who, as you look at them, beside, yes, of course they're not perfect. Of course they're not perfectly mature, sinless. But as you look at them, you see, man, he follows after Christ. If a man cannot take care of his family, and that's in God's economy of lesser importance, how will we take care of the church of greater importance that Christ died for? I want to invite you, please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or a violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. I remember uh, a pastor speaking about American football. You guys call football, the rest of the world calls American football. And I remember him saying that American football might, might seem like chaotic as... You see a bunch of men running and colliding their heads against one another. But he said that actually the game must be very well ordered. There's a lot of order in the game of football. He spoke about the importance of the team lining up, the space between the players, and how they cannot be too close or too far. There's a very specific distance that they must have from one another. And one movement out of time can actually bring the loss of the game. The quarterback, the left tackle, the wide receiver, the middle linebacker, and all of them, they have very specific positions. It must be a well-ordered team. But he reminded me that order is not all in a football game. You must, have, you must have men that are fit for each position. And that's why you don't have a bunch of skinny, scrawny engineers who know a lot of about order in the football field. You have some very specific type of men playing in those positions. 
And we saw last Lord's Day that the church needs to be in order. The church needs order. But what Titus tells us is not order alone. You must have man fit to exercise that position that we establish order in the church. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 1. As we come to verses 5 through 9, we see that yes, there is order that's necessary in every church. But it's not just order, it's just not any elder or pastor. There is a type that God commands to be leading the church. And you might be thinking, I know the temptation here is to think, okay, I can see you're going to be preaching through the qualifications of elders, pastors. I don't desire to be a pastor. I don't desire to be an elder, an overseer. So what is the point of this message? Or others might say, I cannot be a pastor, an overseer. So what is the purpose of this message? First of all, every true Christian is commanded by the Lord to be in a local church. You have, as a Christian, you have a duty and responsibility and a privilege of being part of a local church, being a faithful, healthy member of a local church. You have a command from the Lord to obey your leaders, to honor them. Therefore, you must know what type of leaders God wants in His church. So, on one side of the coin, you must desire to know this text because as every Christian is supposed to be in a church, they must know what type of man is supposed to be leading the church. Besides that, we flip the coin, the qualifications, with the exception maybe of two or three, are basic requirements for all Christians. So as you read the qualifications for an elder, actually you go throughout the New Testament, and even the, through the letter of Titus, and you go, you're going to see that these requirements are actually requirements for all Christians. So young men, young women, older men, older women, all these things here are things that you are supposed to aspire and have in your life. Therefore, you might never be a leader or exercising an office in the church, but you must aspire to have the character of a godly leader. The Bible commands Christians to imitate their leaders as they are imitating Christ. And it's fascinating, I just read the list, and you see how ordinary, actually, it is. As I said, it's for everyone. Look at You can look at the list. Every Christian is commanded to be hospitable. Yeah, the elder is called to be hospitable, but you think about every Christian is commanded to be hospitable. Yes, the elder is commanded to be a lover of good, but every Christian is commanded to be a lover of good. Every Christian, think about it, every Christian is also commanded to be self-control. Amen? Every Christian is commanded to be humble, upright, holy. Therefore, all these things here are applicable for you. We all need to be aspiring these things. That's a wonderful list as, as you go through Titus 1. 
5 through 9. What a wonderful list it is for the moms to be praying for their kids and their husbands. Amen? What a wonderful list. I want my kids to have these attributes here. The fathers should be praying for their wives and children. So, as we come to this portion of Scripture, remember 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, applicable for every single Christian. So you have no escape here. You cannot just run away or just shut down and say, oh, I'm not going to be a pastor, an elder. No, we all here need to pay attention to this portion of Scripture. And as we saw last Lord's Day, as we come to Titus, you can see in your Bible, starting verse 5, we come to the body of the letter. We are starting the body of the letter. And you remember that the first request there, to set the churches in order, that's the main command. And the rest of the letter is going to be coming under this main command to have the church in order. And we saw, you can look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains to order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And the elders, the pastors or overseers, however we call them, they are God's gift to the church to help the church be in order. God-appointed leaders is Jesus' means to bring order to the church. So we saw last Lord's Day that Jesus gave pastors or overseers or elders to the church. And though we are a Baptist church, we believe in the authority of the congregation. We saw that, that Christ has given authority to the church in some very specific areas of the life of the church, we also believe that God has given leaders to the church. Amen? That's why we, we call ourselves a pastor or elder-led congregationalist. And the Bible says that the major duty of these men who are leading the church is to shepherd the flock exercising the Lord-given authority by teaching sound doctrine, equipping the church for the ministry, ruling with the word, overseeing the affairs of the church, caring for the flock in different ways, and being an example to the church of doctrine and character. But now we need to look at, okay, I understand Jesus gave Elders, overseers, pastors, however we call them, to the church. But what do these men must look like? What must they look like? What are they supposed to, to be like? And that's what we have now, starting verse 6 of Titus. This list of qualifications. And, and let me just remind you that this list here is not exhaustive. Amen? It's not exhaustive. There, we need the whole Bible to teach us about the character of a leader. But it's a very important list. We could go to Ephesians chapter 4. We could go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We could go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We could go to Mark chapter 10. All specific places where the Bible is teaching about the type of character that the leader in the church must have. So I like what Robert Yarbrough, he says. I think it's very clarifying here. He says, it should not be thought that the 129 words in the NIV of these four verses, 
represent a comprehensive account of pastoral character, behavior, aptitude, and qualification. Paul rather should be regarded as hitting key high points. Much more could be said, but these are some basic what? Non-negotiable that he wants to remind Titus not to neglect. So those are the non-negotiables that we have here that in every church, and I would say in every place, in every time, the leaders are supposed to have. Amen? We can go to India, we can go to China, we can go to South America, and it doesn't matter. It's not going to change. That's the character that Christ requires of the men who are going to be leading the church. Amen? Uh, as I said, it's very, we could go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are some similarities between 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. But as you read these lists of qualifications, what we see is the target is the character of the pastor, the character of the elder, who he is. It's much more than what he's supposed to be doing. The focus is on who the man is. Why? Because as goes the moral character of the leaders, so goes the church. Raven asks, he says, Paul knew that a healthy church had to have healthy leaders. Paul did not, did not provide a job description for pastors. Instead, his, his lists focus almost entirely on the character required of the ones who would serve in such roles. For a church to be healthy, it needs leaders whose lives are shaped by the gospel, who embody the truth that they teach. I remember Steve Lawson saying once that no church will rise higher than the pulpit. And what he was implying is that the character of those who lead the church and preach and teach are vital in the life of the local church. So this subject is very important for all of us. All of us. Here's the outline we're going to be following this Sunday and the next Sunday. We're going to be looking first at the conditions to exercise the pastoral ministry. What are the conditions? And then you're going to be looking... Expanding the last one, the qualification of blameless, a blameless home, the pastor and his family, blameless conduct, the pastor and his character, and then blameless doctrinal and teaching skills. And you're gonna, we're going to talk about what blameless is because oftentimes people think that's perfection. Be far from perfection. Amen? There is no one who is perfect but Jesus alone. So let's, let's start our journey here. We have a lot to cover. Uh, First, the conditions to exercise the pastoral ministry, to be an elder. You see there in Titus 1.6 that Paul starts, what word does verse 6 start with? If. That's a conditional clause. It's a condition. Similarly, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office, he must be. So there is conditionality. The office of pastor is not open for anyone and everyone. Actually, according to James 3 and the rest of the scriptures, few should exercise that with fear and trembling. 
And I'm going to summarize with three basic conditions that precedes the list here in Titus. And that would be the gender or the, or the sex of the pastor, the aspiration, and the qualification. So first, let's see the, the gender, the sex of the one who is exercising. And it's sad that we need to talk about that, but there has been much confusion in the church nowadays. But it's very clear as you read the New Testament that the office of pastor or elders are supposed to be exercised by those who are males, born, and sadly we need to say born as male, XY chromosome. We need to define that because nowadays it's so messed up. And there are many ways we could expand to, to show how the scriptures teach that. We know by... If you turn the pages to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, there is a clear prohibition coming from the Lord's apostle, that's Paul, prohibiting women to exercise authority in the church. Also, if you look at the pronouns that they are used, the way that the construction in the Greek is used, is always referring to male leadership, the elders, male Paul says, if anyone, in 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone, that anyone, T is in Greek, is a masculine pronoun. If any man. Also, look with me to first, now, Titus 1, you can go just to Titus 1, 6. He says, if anyone is above reproach, what? The husband of one wife. Literally says in the Greek, one woman man. It's a man who has one woman. I'm referring to the man here. He has one woman. And it's interesting that Paul does not use anthropos. Anthropos is a word that can be used for men, but especially for humanity. So in chapter 2, he's going to talk about Jesus appearing, the grace of God appearing to all peoples. Anthropos. And Paul does not use anthropos here. He actually used an heir that refers to an adult male husband. And then he used gunaikos, referring to a female. So the Bible prohibits women to exercise the pastoral ministry. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And you think about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was never afraid to break the social status and the social roles of his day. Amen? And yet, he chose 12 men to be leading the church. If anyone could say, hey, he had women a disciple learning from him, but never to be the 12 apostles leading the church. And he could. Because I have heard scholars say, oh, Jesus was, he was just being gentle to the culture. He was never gentle to the culture around him. And he could, but no. Why? Because the leadership is supposed to be a male leadership. In Acts chapter 6, that's when we have problems with widows. And that's when so many people would say, we need women to help with the widows. And what? They choose men. They chose men to lead the church and deal with the problem with the widows. So Ben Merkel, he writes, the entire New Testament presents a unified voice that teaches male headship in marriage and the, the family. This principle also 
extended to the, church, to the wider church family. Indeed, Paul calls the church the household of God. In listing the qualifications for an elder, Paul simply assumes that the position is intended only for men. He indi indicates that an elder must be the husband of one wife and must manage his, his own household well. There is no hint in the context that women are eligible to serve as elders. And here's the truth, and I have heard from many godly women that they love and they appreciate when godly men lead. Men are called to lead the church because men are called to protect the women. And the office of, of pastor, overseer is a harsh one. It's a hard office. And should not be exercised by women. They need to be protected. They need to be guarded. The women following the words of Peter as the weaker vessels are to be guarded from all the attacks of false shepherds and snake-like predators that come to harm the church. The women should not be taking the front line of the battle. That's the role of men. Think about the shepherd, the role of the shepherd to lay down his life. And think about Jesus. He came as male. He came as a man to be the great shepherd of the church. And the church follows after the great shepherd in having men leading. And yes, men and women stand equally at the foot of the cross as the whole New Testament says, there is no Jew, Gentile, man and women. We all fall short of the grace of the Lord. We are all saved by His grace. But that's not to deny that God has order. He's a God of order. And women have many, many, many different ways to serve the church. It's so sad that they get just one thing that's a blessing that the Lord has given them, and they get angry. So we see the, the first condition is to be a man. Well, not only be a man, Paul says also that there must be aspiration, a strong desire. Not only any man, you have to be the man who long and desire to serve in this office. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, and then he says he desires a noble task. You have the first word there, if any man aspires. The implication here is the man is stretching forth, reaching his hand, making effort in seeking to be an under-shepherd. It means to strive for the office through holy and servant-like actions. This is demonstrated by the man's effort to study the word, serve the church, seeking to be deeply involved in the life of the local church. Not man-made efforts, but Holy Spirit-produced efforts. And the second word you can see in 1 Timothy 3, 1, he desires a noble task, and that's more related to the man's heart, meaning he has a strong passion to serve as an under-shepherd. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but what? Willingly, longing 
desiring. The candidate, the candidate to pastoral office must aspire, long for, be excited about the duty of living and dying for the church. To quote Merkel again, he says, Peter informs us that the elder should shepherd God's flock, not from compulsion, but willingly. One should not agree to serve as an elder out of guilt because he was nominated or because he received the most votes. To be effective, an elder must love and enjoy the hard work of being a shepherd. It's a tragic thing when churches force men into the office of leadership. And we all believe that plurality of elders is a wonderful thing, but sometimes it becomes an idol in a church where they have engraved in the church bylaws that you can only have more than one pastor or elder. And suddenly, in God's providence, you end up with one, and they need to create something. They force men into ministry, and that's a tragedy. We need to remember the leadership in the home is required for all men, but it's not to be equated with leadership in the church. We all know some very godly, noble, well-grounded, scripture men in the church who are never called to serve as an elder. And that's great. That's fine. You cannot be forcing people. You see, the if, if, a condition... Andreas Kostenberg, he says, the if at the beginning of verse 6 indicates that Titus is to appoint elders only when qualified persons are available. And what happens when they're not available? We're going to force, hurry, because we need more. No, we wait on the Lord. We pray, we cry out to the Lord. And why the aspiration, the desire is so important, Paul tells us why this aspiration is vital in the life of a pastor, an elder. He says, if anyone aspires, what? The office of what? Overseer. Overseer, episcopos, remember the one who is exercising oversight. It's a hard work watching over the church. Requires a lot of sobriety to oversee the church. It's hard work, requires tremendous responsibility. Not requires some part of you, it requires the totality of you. While other people are resting, relaxing, you are concerned and watching over the church. And notice that Paul says he desires what? A noble task. And oftentimes we focus on the nobility and we forget the next word. It's a noble what? Ergon, hard work, hard labor. The hard labor of studying the scriptures, feeding the truth of God alone, answering phone calls in the middle of the night, leaving your home to visit others, forsaking yours and your family's comfort, having your family always under the scrutiny of all, the, burden of the, the burdens of the pastoral ministry. I like what Spurgeon says, the sharp knife and the inward bleeding of the criticism, slander, and betrayal. All these things cannot be endured if the office is not grounded in the Spirit-granted desire and longing. If there is not a Holy Spirit-granted desire and longing, 
you will quit soon. Sometimes we think about the metaphor of shepherding as this cuddly, warm, idyllic thing. This sweet shepherd with his staff and the sheep jumping and smiling. And I forget that it's dirty business. Leading the flock is hard labor. Oftentimes the sheep is stubborn, inflexible, and even, even aggressive. And yeah, Paul says that's a noble task. And the nobility is inseparable from the suffering, the pain, and the persecution that the faithful pastor suffers, making him more like Christ. That's why it's noble. Because you are resembling Christ to the congregation. So you can see that the longing and the desire is vital. So we saw it has to be male. And this man must long and desire, and I would say not him alone, but his whole family, because it's a burden on the whole family. The wife must be longing and desiring too, because it falls a lot on her too. And I have seen men leaving, though he desired and longed for, because the wife could not handle it. And there is another one, the third the qualification, and that is blameless. And I'm using this qualification because being a man and having the desire and the aspiration, it's not enough. The Bible says that this man must be blameless. Both 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, they open the list with this word. Either you can see above reproach, blameless, and then basically, blameless or above reproach is a summary of the qualifications they are following after. So, for example, we have the ESV says above reproach, the NIV, the King James, the Christian Standard, they all have blameless. And the legacy trying to be a little bit different, they put beyond reproach. <laughs> they couldn't put above reproach, so they tried to change for beyond, to beyond reproach. But what does it mean for an elder, a pastor, to be blameless, above reproach? Well, we, we know, we know it, it does not mean, right? <laughs> we know it doesn't mean. Yes, perfect maturity, sinless. So we know very clearly what it does not mean, and that helps us. It does not mean perfect, because the only perfect shepherd, pastor, overseer is the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the term blameless, above reproach, is an umbrella term that, co that, that covers the other ones. It's like getting the next one. So, for example, you see above reproach, then you start putting the blender Okay. The husband of one wife, his children are faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery. They start adding all that in the blender, you blend all together, and then it's going to come blameless. That's the picture that we have here. And you see how it, adds, it is the heading of all the qualifications that follow after. So first, he needs to be blameless at home. Look at verse 6 of Titus 1. And then he's going to say that the overseer must be blameless. And then he gives the list of 
attributes of his character. So home, character. The idea is that to be blameless is to have a life that has no major sinful pattern that opens the man for rightly being accused of wrong. Accused he will be. We all will be accused. The world will hate us. He will be accused. But the question is whether the accusations stand. He's a man who cannot have besetting sins, sins that mark his life. He cannot be marked by blemish and defect. There must be a wholeness, not perfection, but a wholeness. As you look at his life, besides his weakness, his imperfections, you see a life that's whole. Also carries to be blameless, carries, as especially you go to the Old Testament, carries a covenantal implication of being faithful to God. A life that demonstrates faithfulness to God alone. So elders will continue to grow, mature, change, and guess what? They will sin. They will keep sinning. But despite their imperfections, they are men worthy to be imitated and followed by the church. They embody godliness that shows the fear of the Lord. Robert Yarbrough, after examining and studying the use of the word blameless throughout the New Testament, he says, to be blameless as a pastoral candidate in Titus 1, therefore, could have to do with living in the present in a way that is consistent with what the grace of the gospel confers on those who believe and receive it. Paul is likewise telling Titus that pastoral candidates must show strong signs of the presence of the divine grace that transforms their lives in godly direction. So the direction of their lives are propelled by the grace of God. There are men who, as you look at them, beside, yes, of course they're not perfect. Of course they're not perfectly mature, sinless. But as you look at them, you see Man, he follows after Christ. His whole life. The pastors or elders must embody the sound doctrine that they are proclaiming from the pulpit. And the whole church is to judge where the man aspiring is blameless, right? Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell, they say... Paul's blameless standard is based upon what others in the church see and observe. And we live in a time where the society wants us to believe that what I do is my own problem. How I live is my own personal problem. And that's not how it is. It affects everyone. And those aspiring to be pastors, elders, must know that the people are rightly so looking at you, and I would hope in love, but looking at you to see if you are following Christ. There is a blameless life, a life that pursues godliness. And as you look at the, at the list of qualifications, you see All these qualifications, very little is spoken about what the pastors or elders are supposed to do and, and how much is connected to the character because one of the major roles 
is to be an example to the church. They're supposed to be a living example of the grace of God in their lives. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. And that's what happened, especially during Jesus' ministry. His confrontation with hypocrites. When you're preaching and your life is not matching what you're preaching, the message loses its power. As we look at the qualifications, we see that there's no need to be perfect. There's no need to be perfectly mature. There's no need to perform miracles. There's no need to be eloquent. There's no need to be rich. There's no need to be socially accepted. But there is the need to be a man of character. Why? Because the elders will be an example to the church. That's what Peter says when he tells the elders to shepherd the flock, not domineering over those who are in charge, but being an example to the church. That's why it's so important as you're looking at the pastors of a church, you see their character. Their character. And sadly, so many churches, they're looking at the world to see what you expect from a pastor. And no wonder the word, the church becomes worldly when they're getting worldly standards and applying to the leaders of their church. Our beloved John MacArthur, he says, it goes without saying that whoever leads in the church will determine what, church what the church becomes in large measure. The life of the church, the ministry of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church, the character of the church, the emphasis of the church, all of that is dependent on the leadership of the church. Church leadership is an essential element of New Testament teaching. There is an inseparable connection between the quality of leadership in a church and the character of that church. Last night, one of the girls asked, is it awkward to preach about the office of a pastor being a pastor? I said, worse than awkward is the vulnerability. Not that so much awkward, but it's how humiliating it is. Because you know that you're preaching and demanding people to look at you and confront your character with the word of God. And that's why I desperately need your prayers. Right? So the, the character of the leadership deeply affects the life of a church. I have heard people, and sometimes I, it's interesting because I, in pastoral ministry, you hurt people uh, sometimes because of the gospel, sometimes because of your own sins. But sometimes, especially when you're standing for righteousness sake, people get offended and then they want to leave the church. And so many times I heard people saying, they're upset with me, they're leaving the church. But it's just so hard because I love this church so much. As if the life of the church had nothing to do with the character of those leading the church. And sadly, we, we have been seeing some faithful ministries, faithful churches buy into this 
lie of the world and the societal, societal lie that we need more diversity. We need more diversity in the church. We need more diversity in the leadership. Brothers and sisters, we do not need more black pastors. We do not need more white pastors. We do not need yellow pastors, Hispanic pastors, Asian pastors. We don't need that. We need godly pastors. We need godly pastors. We need blameless pastors. Pastors that we look and say, man, this guy loves the gospel. And the gospel will be applicable to everyone. The pastors, elders, are to be the flesh and blood examples of the power of the gospel in the life of the Christian. And Paul will give us here in Titus, he's going to give us uh, uh, three major areas where the pastor is supposed to be blameless, to be an example of godliness. He's going to give the home. He's going to give his heart, his conduct. And then he's going to give the church doctrinal skills. He's supposed to have a well-ordered life at home. His heart is supposed to be well-ordered. And his doctrine is supposed to be biblically ordered. So let's move to the first one. Let's just start here. And we're going to be covering the home, the blameless home, the pastor and his family. So Titus is receiving this order from Paul. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And he's going to continue. But you see that the first arena where Paul is dealing with is the family, the home of the man who is going to be leading the church. The home is the proving ground of a man's leadership or the potential to. If a man cannot maintain order and discipline in his own home, he cannot be counted to do better in the church. Turn with me, you just flip the page to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. For, referring to the elder candidate, for if somebody does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now look at verse 15. And now we see that the church is God's household. So Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So what Paul is doing here, he's doing an argument from the lesser to the greater. From the lesser to the greater. The lesser of importance is what? His home. The greater in importance is? Huh. Wow. Yes. Christ died for his church. He did not die for the institution of family or government, but he died for the church. So what Paul is saying is, if a man cannot take care of his family, and that's in God's economy of lesser importance, how will you take care of the church? 
of greater importance that Christ died for. So the one aspiring can be a very skillful leader. He can be a man of great eloquence, very gifted in teaching. But if his home is not exemplary, he cannot be pastoring a church. The leadership of the family be- becomes tangible proof that he's either fit or unfit to lead God's church. But that's, that's something important here, because remember, that's applicable for everyone. And yes, the pastors have a, a, a higher requirement in the sense of more responsibility, but actually, this requirement is for all the men in the church. All the men in the church are supposed to be leading their homes well. Ephesians 5 is not for pastors. It's for the whole church. Every husband is called to lead the home. Every Christian husband is commanded to be a godly leader in the home. And so sad that we live in a time when men are becoming more and more boyish, childish. Instead of leading like men, they're behaving like boys. We can say that they are boys with the body of men. From the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they behave. And what Paul is saying is that we need men in the church. We need godly men in the church. And the pastors, the elders are supposed to be an example of real manhood, biblical manhood. And it breaks my heart to see so many pastors, instead of behaving, acting like men, they're more and more acting like boys. So you see pastors nowadays, they love coming to the Pope with tight t-shirts, show their tattoos, boasting in carnal things. It's heartbreaking. And that's what they're sending, that's the message that they're sending to the church. And the man, instead of growing and becoming more like men, Paul says, when I was a A boy, I acted like a boy. I dressed like a boy, I thought like a boy. But we need to grow. And I and I know that sometimes for women it's hard, hard to find men, godly men, but don't ever lower the standards of the Bible. Be faithful to the biblical standards and God will be faithful to you. And let me just clarify something. It's important. Because the wife and the children, they're not requirements to be a pastor. There's an assumption. There's a generalization. It's assumed that in most cases, pastors will be married. And once married, having children. But it's not a, a requirement to be married. If he's married, he needs to have a godly marriage. And if he has children, he needs to have a godly home. That's very important. Because there are some very godly pastors who are single. 
We all love reading John Stott. He was a single pastor his whole life. Can you imagine? Because I know the, if in God's providence you move out of here and you go to a place where the only healthy church has a pastor who is single, what are you going to do? Oh, no. Are you creating a qualification that's not in the Scriptures? Because think about that if you had moved to Corinth in the first century and Paul was in Corinth for 18 months and you come to visit one of the churches where Paul is preaching and he's a single man. What would you do? Leave? So we just need to be careful to not make laws where the Bible has no law. Amen? And of course, there will be the difficulties of a single pastor in the same way that there's the difficulties with a married pastor. But if he's single, it's the same standard of holiness and purity and order in his life. Amen? So let's move to the first one, the first aspect that Paul tells here. We see that it's the pastor and his family, but he's going to be very specific, the pastor and his wife. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. The first qualification is related to the man's relationship to whom? His wife. Why? Because he's supposed to resemble Christ. And Christ loves his church and his church alone. He dies for his church alone. Therefore, the under-shepherds are supposed to resemble the great shepherd. And Paul says that the elder, the pastor, he must be a one-wife husband implies that the man is fully faithful to his wife. And of course, of course, Paul is talking against, of course, this condition here is a prohibition against homosexuality. It's a prohibition against polygamy or any other perversion of the creation, created marriage. Of course it is. But this qualification, I believe, goes much beyond the legal aspects of being married to one woman. Because there are many men, there are many, many men who are married to one wife. But they're always flirting and relating to other women. Yes, they may be a one-wife husband as a legal status. But they have multiple women in their eyes, in their heads, in their hearts. And sadly, sometimes even their own arms through betrayal. And what Paul is doing here, he's going to the heart of the matter. The pastor has one woman whom he loves, treasures, and honors. And this criterion goes back to creation. When God created what? Two women for one man? One man and one man? One man and one woman. That's it. This qualification goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, Proverbs chapter 5. So much of the Proverbs talk about delighting in your wife alone. You could use the whole book of Songs of Song and so many other texts in the scripture where you see one man who's called to find all his satisfaction, his love in his one wife. Like Christ loves the church, the elders called to reflect this Christ-like relationship to his wife. A blameless marriage has nothing to do with a perfect marriage. Amen? <laughs> Rachel has a big smile. <laughs> there is no perfect marriage. 
The only creation of perfect marriage that you see nowadays is on social media, where people only post the beautiful pictures. They never show the ugly things that's happening behind their marriages. But blameless marriage is a marriage where the man is pursuing Christ, loving Christ to the best of his abilities by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, loving and treasuring his wife. If the man cannot be completely committed to his wife, do you think he's going to be complete, completely committed to the church? No. If he's not committed to his wife, he will not be committed to his church. And as we talk about the wife, the wife, as I said earlier, plays a major role in the life of a pastor. And for those who aspire eldership and, and to be pastors, the church has an important role in talking even to the wives of the, those men. And, and, the, and the wives should not be covering things so the men can have a position in the church. Because if you're covering things for your husband to have a position in the church, then you're actually harming your marriage and harming the church. Hills and Chapel, they write, God requires the church to determine whether a potential elder's marriage is whole, healthy, and solid as part of the assessment of whether that person is qualified for leadership in the church. As a corollary, men with damaged or deficient marriages should not pursue church leadership positions thinking that others will not care or notice. They will care and notice. This may drive some men to secrecy, but hopefully it will stir more to seek correction and aid. Amen? And as we think about pastors and elders and their wives, I, it's very wise, it's very wise, for pastors, elders, overseers to strive to the best of their abilities to protect their marriage and their practical ways in meeting with women, not meeting one-on-one or always in public. It's interesting that I remember two pastors, one whom I really appreciated no longer appreciate him. Uh, and the other one who I know, this too, in different occasions, saying how important it was for a pastor to have counseling with the woman one-on-one and not have other people in the room. They argued strongly because that helps the woman to be more open makes more awkward having someone in the room I don't need to say the result both fell 
Not only that, I would say that even pornography disqualify a man for the office. If a man has a pattern of indulging himself with pornography, he reveals not to be faithful to his wife. We are going to see that he's not supposed to be a drunkard. Drunkenness is idolatry, where you have alcohol as your idol. So we could, we're going to talk about that next Lord's Day. It's any idol that's governing your life. And pornography is an idol. It's not a disturbance of the brain, it's a disturbance of the heart, where you have an idol. So idolatry to pornography not only disqualifies a man for ministry, but I would say that persistence in pornography should lead to church discipline, something that we don't hear nowadays. So many other sins, if the man or a woman continues, we are going to bring to the church, and then suddenly we try to pretend that this pornography is okay. So, see, that's heavy. Who is able? Who is able to exercise this office? And for all of us, because remember, that's pretty much required of all of us. Who is able to live a life like that? The Bible commands all of us to be blameless. There's a command for all of us to be blameless. And the answer is no one. No one can do that apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel, apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives, apart from the saving grace of God, no one can do that. But the beauty of the gospel is that by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live like that. We not only can, we must because God empowers us to do what He's commanding us to do. So there is no way to look at these qualifications, to look at verse 6 and not see and not behold the violent mercy of God in conquering sinners. Think about those men who were in Crete, Cretans. And now by the power of the gospel, they can live lives where they are under shepherds of Christ. And let's get out of Crete and let's come to Salem. Where we, who once lived in darkness, loved darkness, by the power of the gospel, we can live lives that are blameless before the Lord. So the gospel empowers you, man, to become a one-wife husband. Loving your wife as Christ loves the church. He empowers you to put to death your sins that have been hindering your spiritual walk. Christ empowers wives to be one husband wife. Loving their husbands with the love of Christ. All praise to Him. Amen. Amen. So let us pray. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before this sovereign, wonderful God who have had mercy on us and has shown the power of the gospel in our lives. Oh Lord, we 
humble ourselves before you. Your word is truly a sharp sword that cuts, kills, and at the same time is this balm that brings life and healing. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will use your word to change us this morning. Oh Lord, let us not be like when we first came here. We pray for a greater affection. A greater affection towards Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Enlarge our hearts, O Lord. Help us. Help us to live in the power of the gospel. Yes, we will sin, but we are no longer slaves of sin. Our lives have no need and cannot be marked by slavery to sin. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And we give all the glory to Him. Lord, help us. Help us to delight in You. And this morning, as we look to verse 6, we just give You all the glory and all the thanks for saving us. Our hearts are truly filled with thankfulness. Because you have captivated us. You have made us alive. And all these things that you're commanding pastors. You have empowered all your people to walk in holiness. So we thank you, Lord. Preserve our church. And we pray that you'd raise godly men to lead their homes and godly men to lead your church so that your name will be glorified and not profane in the name of Jesus